Good morning, church. Good morning, Chuck and Ani, <laughs> and everybody else who secretly said hello to me, I suppose. Uh, we're so glad that you're here as we open up uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, there's scripture journals in the back, so if you weren't here with us last week, but you'd like that resource to follow along and take notes, uh, please just grab one off the back uh, at any point in the service. It's our gift to you. Take it, keep it. Uh, we'd love for you to have it. And before we uh, dive into Nehemiah 2, well, let me just start off by saying thanks. Thanks. Uh, it's Memorial Weekend. We, uh, as a country, I think sometimes might lose perspective of uh, the great cost of our freedom, of even gathering together here on a Sunday morning, uh, the price that was paid uh, by those that are in the military, uh, by the pilgrims as they came over seeking religious uh, freedom to gather together to, to pray, to worship God uh, without the control of the kingdom, overruling everything that they did. Uh, and so on this Memorial Day, I just want to say thanks on behalf of Christ Bible Church to all of those uh, in here that have been in the military, that have family members that are in the military, it's a great price to pay uh, to serve our country in that way, and we're so grateful uh, for that. And I want to start our sermon tying into that, uh, the date June 6, 1944. It's next Sunday uh, would be the anniversary of this. Some of you know what that date is by heart. Others uh, would know it by the name D-Day. It's this wonderful, magnificent military maneuver, American and allied forces storming the beach of Normandy to push back the tide of Nazi rule in Europe. It's daring and costly, but it proves ultimately effective. It's this moment that we see depicted in movies like Saving Private Ryan, and we're motivated by the images of these young men pouring off boats, running up the beach, bullets whizzing past their head, uh, not worried about the cost that it might take their life, uh, worried about the action and the step in fighting for freedom. It's a tragic day, but also a tremendous day. A day that I think is important to remember. And so it's recorded in history. And there's many such stories like this all throughout history. We remember these heroic days, these heroic actions, but rarely as we get glimpses of those do we see the extensive planning that goes into pulling off such a maneuver. And so D-Day, like almost all great moments in history, military or otherwise, has several years of careful and meticulous planning that go between Roosevelt and Churchfield, between American and all the rest of the Allied forces as they prepared to take the beach that fateful day on June 6th. Careful and meticulous planning to allow for the heroic action that we uh, have immortalized to us today. Even the timing of the boats being launched had to be planned perfectly, judging by the speed that some boats could carry and other boats couldn't to make sure that at the same moment these people would be arriving at these different beaches to retake that uh, part of Europe and to be able to have a foothold to push back against Germany. This morning, as we turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, we see a heroic moment, a life and history-altering moment in the history of Israel and of the man Nehemiah. But there's one thing that's abundantly clear as we read it. 
and it's that God's servant has a patient and precise plan and has the proper perspective as he is decisively pulling it off. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 and read together this morning. Verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and of the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy." And the, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these eight verses and beyond in Nehemiah 2 this morning, we see the picture of this man, rooted in prayer for months, coming at this precise moment, carefully executing his plan. And as we look at it, as we see what you would have to say to us from this event in the life of Nehemiah, in the way that he conducts himself in the presence of the king, and in the return to Jerusalem, that you would be stirring in our hearts and minds, Lord, the same attitude, an attitude of what it means to be your servant, and to live for you, and to work for you. Father, we are so thankful for the words of Nehemiah 2 and ask that they might speak to us and transform us this morning. Amen. One thing we see in the book of Nehemiah, very clearly, if you've read through the whole book, he's a leader and he's an achiever. Time and time again, it's obvious that he is a man who acts decisively and quickly, never flinching in the face of opposition. But here, in the beginning of this book, chapters 1 and 2, we see a man that does not seem to be bold nor quick. We see a man from the end of chapter one to the beginning of chapter two that it might appear has not done much of anything. He had prayed in verse 11 of chapter one, if you remember last week, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And yet today had turned into tomorrow, and tomorrow had turned into next week, and next week had turned into next month. In fact, nearly a 100 days have passed from that first fateful meeting at the beginning of chapter one towards this moment in chapter two. 
Does this mean that God did not answer Nehemiah's prayer when he said, give me success in this man's presence today? No. He finishes this section, verse 8, acknowledging that he only has success uh, from the king because the good hand of God was upon him. God is going to answer that prayer, but it's not going to be immediate. And so we must be careful to notice what is happening between that first meeting in chapter 1, verse 2, with Hanani, and the beginning of the action in chapter 2. It might seem like Nehemiah has done nothing for months. We know he's been praying, and we talked about the importance that he sees in prayer and, and how we might pray last week. But something else has also been happening, which becomes evident as we read chapter 2. Nehemiah has been planning. And what we see here, as chapter 2 unfolds, is that God's servant has both a plan and perspective. God's servant has a plan and perspective. That plan has been developed since that first meeting with Hanani. And it's beginning to unfold here in chapter 2. That plan is both patient and precise. What do I mean by that? It would have been easy for Nehemiah to receive the report from his dear brother, to lament over the suffering of his people in Israel, and to immediately go to the king for a request. Indeed, it seemed like something that he wanted to take care of as quickly as possible. As a cupbearer, he would have had opportunity after opportunity to be in the king's presence and to make such a request. But he has waited months to make this request. Why is this? Because God's servant has a plan that is precise and he's going to execute it with patience. He's been praying. Why? Well, prayer is good. And there is great stakes for Nehemiah's life in even coming before God. It's wise to approach God before undertaking anything, let alone something that's going to require such great and significant risk. He's going to go to the king and ask for his people to be given the supplies to rebuild Jerusalem. But it's not just the resources. He's also, in going to Artaxerxes, asking him to reverse the decree that we see in Ezra chapter 4. If you remember six, seven weeks ago as we were going through Ezra, Ezra 4 details the type of opposition that God's people faced from their opponents. They had spread lies and rumors and whipped the king up into a frenzy to feel like the people of Judah were going to rebel, they were going to quit paying their taxes, they were going to start annexing other nations, and that there would be a rebellion in the midst of Artaxerxes, something that had been happening all over his kingdom. And so pressed with the rumors coming from these surrounding nations, which were founded in total lies and fabrications, Artaxerxes had sent a decree. In Ezra chapter 4, this decree says simply, the building of the walls of Jerusalem must stop. And indeed, they do. So as Nehemiah now is approaching this same king, he's not asking just for supplies. He's not asking just to be relieved of his duties as cupbearer. He's asking for King Artaxerxes to literally remove the decree, to change what he had said. There's significant risk of offending the king by asking him to change 
his decision. If not done properly, Artaxerxes might take this request as a rebuke and deal with Nehemiah accordingly. Second, in his role as cupbearer, Nehemiah was meant to bring joy to the king. His sadness would be the opposite of his purpose. He's bringing wine and other things to the king for him to enjoy. If Nehemiah is sad, he's literally not fulfilling his job. He might be sent off into the gallows, or worse, perhaps killed for not fulfilling his duty. So he's not just asking to change the mind of the king, risk the king feeling like he's rebuking him. He's literally stepping out on a limb, knowing that his very life is on the line. And because of this, I think Nehemiah has waited for the proper time. A hundred days to come up with the plan, to know the resources, the costs, the scope of the project, but also to know when he should approach the king. So what does it say in chapter 2? He approaches Artaxerxes when the wine was before him. Some may read this and think, Nehemiah has waited until the king is good and drunk. Then I will make my request. Uh, Then he will give me what I want. But I don't think that's what he's pointing to here. Nehemiah's careful planning and the way that we have this recorded, when wine was before him, and Nehemiah is taking up the wine, the position of the queen next to the, to the king, is pointing us to perhaps a time in the calendar that there's a festival. This could be to commemorate Artaxerxes' reign or a great victory that they had. It's a time of celebration, a time when the kings would grant favors to his loyal subjects and servants. And Nehemiah has carefully waited, knowing that this day would come up, when everybody would be happy and in a really good mood, that joy would be present, that the wine would be poured, everybody would be having a great time, and the king might, under such a circumstance, receive this very daring request with approval. His plan is not just about what he will do, but when he will do it. And so in the unwritten words between chapter 1 and 2, Nehemiah has been planning and patiently waiting to come before the king and to execute his plan. The timing, the cost, the tone, all carefully construed. He's going to execute with precision. No doubt he had been sad for several months since receiving this word from his brother. The plight of his people was a devastating reality to him, and never once, up until this time, does the king see his sadness. He has waited until the proper time to reveal his need and to let the king bring him in to make the request. Nehemiah had planned out even his tone. And yes, this is the sadness that he approaches, but it's even in the way that he responds. Verse 3 tells us, I was very much afraid. And so I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed uh, by fire? Is Nehemiah lacking in boldness here? Is he cowering by asking a question in, in response to the king? 
No, he's calculating. As cupbearer, he had probably seen many people make requests of the king. He'd known how the king responds to different situations, what tone would be appropriate. The way that he begins to make his request is all part of the careful plan that Nehemiah has. And he appeals to something here. When he goes to the king and says, why, why shouldn't I be sad? Wouldn't you be sad if this was happening to you? He's pulling on an emotional string and something that is very important in ancient Near Eastern culture. In culture. The Persians, as well as the Assyrians, the Egyptians, had great pride in their ancestors. They wanted them to be honored and remembered. And so as he goes to Artaxerxes, he doesn't say, why am I sad? My people are literally dying. They have no protection. They're in dire need. I need to get there and help as fast as possible. No, what does he say? Wouldn't you be sad too if the graves of your fathers were being trampled on? Wouldn't it bring you sadness, O great king, to see your heritage disrespected like so? And this begins to work in the heart of Artaxerxes. Nehemiah never wavers in his requests. He's full of fear because he knows the potential personal ramifications of asking Artaxerxes all of these things, but he never wavers once in asking. He responds clearly, concisely, and with great wisdom. We say this same process of planning and patience play out as he returns to Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 11. It tells us this, I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. What does Nehemiah do after the king grants him this great favor? He goes to Jerusalem, he assesses the situation, and he's patient in delivering the plan. He's quiet about what he's come to do before he actually knows what he actually has to do. He's going to execute with precision and not some haphazard plan. Could Nehemiah have jumped right into action after the report from his brother in chapter 1? Sure. He could have returned to Jerusalem and immediately also begun telling everybody what to be, do and begin rebuilding. He had a letter from the king. He was to be the governor of Jerusalem. He had the authority, and they must respect that authority. They were obligated to listen to him. He could have immediately began shouting and telling them what to do, but that's not how he operates. He's patient, he's calculating, and he makes a plan that is rooted in prayer. If he had run immediately to the king, he might have not gone at the opportune time or even been ready to answer the question about how long it was going to take or the cost of the wood and other materials that he was going to need. If he had immediately gone to the people of Jerusalem with some half-baked plan, saying, I've come to be your hero and rebuild the walls, I'm the big picture guy, right? Some, some of us know people like this, they're big picture people, which means they know the destination and have no clue how to get there. And so Nehemiah could have come and said, I'm the big picture guy, I'm your governor, I'm going to get these people, they're going to make the plan, but what are we going to do? We're going to rebuild the wall. How are we going to do it? I have no idea. That's not how he operates because I don't think it's a wise way to lead. And Nehemiah knows that if he's going to get these people on his side to begin rebuilding, to fight, to be diligent, 
he's going to need to earn their respect and have a good, well thought out of plan. So often we jump into things and expect outcomes in the absence of plans in our lives. We want things to be a certain way. A good example of this is health, right? Most people that I've met wish they were healthier, or they at least aspire to be healthy. And so we might say something like, I want to eat healthier, or I want to exercise more. I've said these things multiple times. And so we do something, I'm going to exercise more. What are we going to do? Well, I need a place to exercise. It's 140 degrees every day in Phoenix, so I need to get a gym membership because I'm going to die if I try to exercise outside. And so we go down and we sign all this paperwork and you know, sign in blood and never can get out of contracts with different gyms and uh, join a gym and we have a membership and we say, now I will be healthy, I will begin to exercise. Well, speaking from personal experience, gym memberships do nothing uh, to help you exercise. Uh, you can own them for many, many months and never once go there, right? It's a well-thought-of destination, a big picture. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to be healthy. And yet, without the proper plan, it doesn't actually work. We snooze the alarm. We skip workouts day after day. We may even buy healthy food, but when we're hungry and we're driving home, that hot and spicy from McDonald's seems a lot better than driving home and making salad and waiting 15 minutes to 30 minutes to eat. We settle for the 30-second dollar uh, chicken sandwich or whatever it is from McDonald's and feel satisfied. We take cheat meal after cheat meal because we don't have a plan. That's just one area, though. Everyone wants to be healthy. I've never once met somebody who's content to be totally unhealthy. If they can change it, they want to change it. They're not like, I would be satisfied if I never moved again in my life. I've never met one person that said that. They all want to be healthy, to feel better, to have more energy, to be able to do more things. And yet the people that typically are are the ones that have the plans to do so. Nehemiah is pointing us to a very basic truth here. If we want to accomplish things, either personally, relationally, even big picture things, accomplish things for God, we have to be effective in making good plans. You want to reach coworkers and talk to them about Jesus? That's great. Everybody that's a Christian would say that. Why do so, people, so few people do it? They don't have a plan. There's no way that they say, I'm gonna be intentional about executing this. You want to be more intentional and honor God with your finances, that's great. You might even take a Dave Ramsey course, that's good. But the reality is, if we don't have plans to intentionally start to implement and reach our goal, goals are just goals. They're actually totally worthless. We have to have the plan to begin to live it out. We can't expect results from things in our lives, our spiritual lives, our relational lives, our vocational lives, unless we begin to have good plans that are rooted in God's word. Nehemiah is a man that has a plan that is rooted in prayer. For a hundred days, he's been praying probably day after day after day, God, help me. God, help me. My people need a wall. They need protection. They need security. Won't you show up and help provide that? Won't you grant me success? But he goes beyond just praying. He makes 
the plan. Too often in our lives and in the lives of most Christians, we are prayfully passive. We go to God and say, God, I want these things. I want my kids to know you. Please help them to know you. And yet our plan is non-existent to make that happen. We're totally passive in the process. There's fun, catchy Christian phrases like, let go and let God, or if God really wants it, he'll, he'll make it happen. What is that saying? It's saying we're apathetic and passive. That's not the faith that Nehemiah is pointing us to. The faith that says, I will pray to God and be rooted in God, but I will make a plan and live a life full of action. One of the fundamental pieces of truth we see in scripture and specifically in the book of Nehemiah is God works through the plans of his people. Verse eight, verse 18, verse 20 here in chapter two, God is at work and Nehemiah makes sure that people see it. Nehemiah might have the plan, but God is gonna be the one that makes that plan effective. But just because we say God works through the plans of his people, we have to be careful and, and recognize that this doesn't mean that God changes or adapts his plans uh, to fit our plans. God doesn't sit up in heaven and say, Randy, you know, I want you to do this, and, and puts it on my heart, and then I start to do it, and he's like, nah, that's not how I would have done that. The truth of scripture is that God brings all things to pass. Even our foolish plans often are ways that God is working to bring about us and our dependence on him. All things that happen are under God's control. But that also doesn't mean we're not people who carefully plan and want to be active and precise. Prayfully planning things helps us not only to be precise but to be bold in our execution. Nehemiah cannot go before this king unless he needs or unless he knows what he needs and finds the courage to act out. But I think Nehemiah knows something that is true. He doesn't have that courage on his own. Nehemiah is not this brave man who can do all things because of his own power. No, he's constantly drawing on who he is in light of God. And that's why in chapter one, he's been pulling out all these great words about the faithfulness of God and the loyalty of God and the way God works in his people. Raymond Brown in his commentary writes this, we are rarely given the precise resources in advance so that they are stored away like immense untouched reserves of courage, fortitude, strength, and peace. No, grace comes in the moment of need. Over the centuries, millions have testified to the truth that in crisis, they were enabled to respond to the challenges with a resourcefulness that they scarcely would have thought possible. The crisis did not engulf them as they might have feared. It opened new doors and they proved God's sufficiency as never before. What do we see here in Nehemiah? A man who has plans, but a man knows his plans are worthless unless God acts. He is totally dependent on God. Another way of saying this, God's servant Nehemiah has perspective. He has plans, yes, but he also has perspective. And this perspective is gonna give him the confidence to execute his daring plan for restoring the great city of Jerusalem, for asking the king to reverse his order and decrees, to give him supplies and time off so that he might lead his people. 
Why is he able to do this? Like I said, Nehemiah knows who God is. Last week we read it. Chapter 1, verse 5, Nehemiah. Opening words of his prayer. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Nehemiah knew that God was faithful to his people. He knew the character of God. The Hebrew word here is hesed. It's used over and over and over in the Old Testament. It comes out as steadfast love, but what this really is tying to is steadfast love is his loyalty to his covenant and his covenant people. God is a God who is loyal and dependable. Nehemiah executes his plan, prays to God because he trusts in God and God's character. He simply knows who he is, and if he has carefully planned out everything as best he could, but doesn't have God involved in it, he knows it's not going to be enough. He knows that Jerusalem would not be rebuilt unless God does the work. And so he plans, and he plans, and he prays, and he prays. And what's he say at the end? Verse 8, verse 18, verse 20. God was in it. It's so easy for us to look at the book of Nehemiah and think that this is a book about a man. Nehemiah is a wonderful man. You can go online, go to YouTube, and there's a hundred different sermons on leadership principles of Nehemiah and how to effectively lead and manage people. And some of them are helpful and some of them aren't. But when we look at Nehemiah as a book about Nehemiah, we miss the point. Nehemiah himself wants these people to understand that he is not the main character in his own story, that God is. That without God, all of his plans, all of his administration, all the work that he is doing would be for nothing. And so Nehemiah makes sure that as often as he can in these pages of his book, he is testifying about the goodness and the loyalty of God. We are called to do the same. This plays out well in chapter three when he begins the rebuilding efforts. We miss it if we just start reading through the way that he's organized. So that's great, these people went there and these people went there. He's assigned all these different uh, people to help and to distribute the wealth. And again, leadership principles about delegation and all these things that abound if you go online. But what do we see here? Chapter three, verse one. Nehemiah starts with the sheep gate. It might seem insignificant, but when we take a moment to realize Jerusalem is surrounded, there's enemies all around them. They don't like him. Verse 19 of chapter two shows us that there's these three guys representing the nations that are totally surrounding Israel. View Nehemiah as enemy number one. They don't like him. Somebody's finally come to advocate for the people of Jerusalem. They want him gone. But what does Nehemiah prioritize? Is it his own protection? Is it his house that the king's given him lumber and the bill to rebuild? No. He starts with the sheep gate. Why the sheep gate? Well, the sheep gate's where all the sheep came through for temple sacrifices. Above all else, the first thing that was going to be rebuilt, rebuilt, the first gate that was going to go up was the gate that was going to make it as easy for God's people as possible to approach him and to worship him and to bring the offerings to God, to the temple. Nehemiah prioritizes God's place. 
God will protect me. I am fully confident of that. And he tells the people so much. Don't be afraid of these guys. God's with me. He's put these things on my heart. We're going to be okay. Just do the work that he's called us to do. He sees himself as nothing more than God's servant. And in this, he points us to Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us this. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is in a wider context of Jesus trying to help his disciples know the cost of being a disciple and ultimately his mission. Jesus, God himself in flesh, came not to demand protection, not to demand service, but to be humbled and to live his life to serve others and ultimately to die and pay the price that they might be redeemed to him. Jesus the great, dependable, faithful, loyal Savior. Nehemiah chapter 2 might have all these great things about planning, about being patient, knowing the cost of what we do before we start it, but at its core, it's pointing us towards this man, Jesus, who if we don't have him, all things are lost. And so the call for us this morning, yes, it's to plan, yes, It's to be precise, but it's to have perspective and to know that we need Jesus in our lives, that we need him to do the work that we cannot do. You want to rebuild relationships with family, with spouses, with coworkers? You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. You want to change? You want to overcome sin in your life and battle back? You can't do it on your own. You're a slave to it unless you have Jesus. Scripture tells us Jesus is the remedy. If we have the right perspective, our good plans of overcoming, of doing these things, of being faithful and having action in our lives can come to fruition. But the best plans, if they're void of Jesus, will just be more plans in a long list of things we hope to do but never were able to do. Nehemiah's planning, patience, and precision, as well as his perspective, allow him to be bold and confident in the work that he has. He will accomplish his plan not because he's an effective administrator, although it's clear that he is, but because the hand of God was on him. He will do great things. He will have the courage to ask the king and the courage to face down opposition because he knows God and he trusts in God leaves us with three questions this morning. First, do you know God? Simply, do you know God? You can't have God-centered plans. You can't rely on God if you don't know him. If you don't know his character, if you don't know the ways that he's loyal, you don't know the things that he asks of his people, you can't actually make God-centered plans. And so the first question you have to answer is, do I know God? If you don't, are you tired of the pressure you feel to be perfect to produce? Jesus gives us the relief from that. He gives us rest and assurance. Know who he is. Second, what is your perspective? Another way of revealing this would be to answer the question, on what does my hope fall? 
Nehemiah knew that all the careful planning in the world would be for nothing if God wasn't in his activity. Are you pursuing and entrusting yourself to God? Are you finding your hope in him and him alone? And finally, after answering those two questions, what is your plan for action? What areas of life do you look out on like Nehemiah in chapter one and you see a desperation for God to act? Do you fall on your knees and say, oh great God of heaven, help me in this. Would you help me to make the plan to be delivered from whatever this is? What is your plan for action? Are you going to God in prayer and then making plans to deal with those areas he feels, you feel him calling you to deal with? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the man of Nehemiah, the careful, planning, patient, precise man, but the man who has perspective, who knows that even the best plans are worthless unless you are in them. Father, we desire to be a people so firmly rooted in who you are, who know you with such great, such great depth that we find our security and hope in you, that we have plans that are rooted in prayer and that we're able to be effective and bold because we're acting for you. Father, might you help us to develop into those kinds of people, to be a man like Nehemiah, who has that perspective and reliance and hope in you. Father, would you allow us to be bold, but more than all of that, would you draw us close to who you are and let us trust in the assurances of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he gives. Amen.